You're listening to Right Between the Eyes, the Bellingen Readers and Writers Festival podcast, where each episode we sit down with an outstanding festival guest to talk about their life, their work, the deepest, darkest secrets they'd intended to take to the grave. It's all on the table. You'll also hear a special musical feature from one of the region's most exciting performers. And if that wasn't enough, we cap things off with an author reading from yet another standout festival guest. It's a cavalcade of words for your ears, all on Right Between the Eyes. On our last episode, we sat down with former leader of the Greens, Bob Brown, who was scheduled to appear at the festival in conversation with Media Watch host Paul Barry and human rights champion, Julian Burnside QC. Today, we're thrilled to keep that COVID-cancelled highlight rolling by welcoming Julian Burnside. Julian has been a tireless defender of refugee and human rights for close to 20 years, from his involvement in the Tampa affair to his ongoing efforts to address climate change. Some of the stories he shares here are harrowing, others full of hope. Also on the show, iconic author and playwright Louis Naura joins us with a reading from his collected stories, and local band The Mid-North dazzle with the sweet sounds of Rosewood. But first, it's time to talk politics, the law, and morality with our featured guest. Today, I'm very thrilled to welcome Julian Burnside. Julian, thank you very much for taking the time to chat with us. It's a great pleasure. I mean, it would have been grand to actually see you up in Bellingen in the flesh, but you know, we'll just have to, to put a pin in that for the time being. Yeah, it would have been pretty cool being in conversation with Bob Brown and, and Paul Barry. Yes, well, it was going to be uh, certainly a, a headline event, a conversation that I, I was very thrilled to be looking forward to. Uh, so who knows? What the future holds, I think, across the country, all plans are a little up in the air at the moment. Yeah, well, especially in Victoria. Yes, absolutely. Well, I mean, this is an interesting time to be speaking with you, uh, given that we have a rather unenviable first in Australia, as I understand, in that uh, we've seen a capital city that's been given a curfew and the entire state of Victoria is in a, a state of emergency. And, I mean, it struck me that I think that this is a time that's seen a, a host of responses to changes in everyday behavior, like shopping or visiting friends. And it's pulled focus quite tightly on the responsibilities of the individual in doing the right thing in this time. And largely, it's it's doing that on good faith. It's self-isolating and such. And that said, there's quite a contingent of people who seem to feel that their own liberties are somehow being restricted or that the whole affair isn't really that serious in the first place. What are your thoughts on why well, some people... Well, they're, they're, right, they're right in thinking that their liberty is being restricted, but the point is they're being restricted for the purpose of preserving the liberties of everyone else. Well, and um, you know, I, in my opinion, when, when you're facing an extreme difficulty, if some people's rights have to be sacrificed to preserve the rights of everyone else, so be it. I mean, when you think about it, in London during the Blitz, a homeowner could easily have said, well, it's my right to turn on my lights and I don't have to close my curtains. And, of course, they'd be right. It would have been their right. But the law required them to help maintain the blackout, and so it was. And that's for the protection of everyone. And I'm actually driven crazy by these people who raise 
a complaint about their own human rights uh, in response to the uh, the relatively slight restrictions on our rights uh, in order to defeat the coronavirus. I imagine it must seem like a a rather different city and state down there at the moment. Because I know in a, a lot of my interviews with various authors, there's the sense of, oh, if you want to really you know, reflect back or write about a place, you need to at first be at a distance, go overseas or, or you know, get a, a little bit of a perspective. I suspect that this has uh, changed the way that people look at their everyday lives and their surrounds quite dramatically. I, I suppose that's right. I mean, I'm, I hesitate because I'm relatively antisocial and so I spend a lot of time at home and it, that doesn't worry me. The, the fact is that the the shutdown um, hasn't really, or the lockdown hasn't really troubled me a whole lot. Maybe it comes at a good time because I've just had surgery on my shoulder, so my ordinary activities are a bit limited anyway. But you know, that's just an excuse. So, how have you found your 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 lockdown days? I know many people out there have taken to writing diaries or to um, picking up some kind of hobby that they'd always intended that was sitting on the back burner. Have you uh, developed a new a new taste for building ships in bottles or, or something that had always been tucked away? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Although um, I have I have decided to start writing a new book, oh. um, but that's probably something I would have done in any event, hmm. just that I'll have a little bit more time to do it. I wanted to talk about, I mean, there's many, many things we can touch on today, but I was thinking of, given the the world at large and a lot of the frustrations that people are feeling, especially during COVID times, but I was looking back on old interviews with you and, and bits of footage here and there. And as the, the Greens candidate for Kuyong, I saw when you were interviewed by, by then leader Richard Di Natale, who essentially was asking you, oh, after never really wanting to venture into politics, why now? And you answered, urgency, which rather implies that not only is the world at large not improving, but that we're running out of time. So what is the shape of that urgency that you see? Um, Well, can I say... The, the idea that I was reluctant to go into politics understates it. I've always detested politics and politicians. <laughs> mm. But when the IPCC came out with its November 2018 report, which said, in effect, we've got until 2030 to take serious steps against climate change or it will be too late, the or it will be too late really made me think this is serious. Now, if you look at the two major parties, neither of them, uh, is doing anything really effective in relation to climate change. The only party with a really strong policy in relation to climate change is the Greens, and that's why I decided to give it a belt for the Greens. Mm. But I, I think climate change is the is the one really serious issue facing the world. And it's fascinating that you know coronavirus, which threatens the lives of between one and two percent of the population, has really captured the imagination and activity of most politicians in most countries apart from America. Yet climate change, which threatens the lives of 100% of the population, mm. um, is, is, not, is not a matter which attracts great attention here or in America. And that appalls me. I mean, 
I know that the real, the worst effects of climate change probably won't be visible during my lifetime, but that is not a reason to ignore it. Mm. Do you suppose because and- it is somewhat abstract in a sense that even though we are all part of the environment and part of the natural world, because a lot of people wouldn't be seeing firsthand effects, it becomes not unrealistic, but difficult to grasp or difficult to engage in? I, I think your your reference to it being abstract is probably right. Um, if, especially for politicians, I mean, let's face it, on the worst predictions, climate change is really going to come crashing down to us uh, by the end of this century. All of the current crop of politicians will be dead and gone by then. So it doesn't matter a scrap to them. Mm. Um, all they have to do is or carry lumps of coal into Parliament or somehow somehow suggest that we've got good reasons to ignore it. What is amazing about this, I mean, I got interested in climate change some years ago, and what is amazing about it is that the mechanism of climate change, apart from the fact that we're creating um, a lot of heat by burning, you know, sunshine that's been captured in wood, coal, oil, etc., for millions of years. Apart from that, the mechanism is that carbon-based molecules in the atmosphere prevent infrared heat from escaping the Earth. It's the blanket effect. We have known about that since the 1850s. Now, and we've done nothing about it. It's just breathtaking. You touched on a an interesting point there, and not that I'm about to start advocating a... Um... Prime Minister for Life scenario, but it does strike me that, I mean, much of politics, I think, is largely going to be driven by individual political survival, which will generally imply short to mid-term policies and solutions, I mean, things that can be achieved to convince an electorate to keep electing that individual, which isn't a blanket rule, but I, I think it certainly seems to be the case when you look at things like environmental or um, the arts and humanities concerns. Is it realistic to expect long-term plans of actions from our politicians when the political landscape is skewed to a different sort of timeline? Um, I think it's reasonable to expect because politicians ought to be concerned about things beyond their own political or physical life. Um, But the, the reality seems to be that politics doesn't work that way, which is a real pity. I think most people uh, alive on Earth today would be willing to take serious steps against climate change if only, if only our current politicians would be honest about it and say, "Yeah, this is really, really dangerous. It's going to, it's going to damage your grandchildren or your great grandchildren, but it will destroy all of them." Now, you know that's a pretty serious thing to think about, and I say that sort of encouraged by the gap between um, political responses to coronavirus on the one hand and climate change on the other. Because as I understand part of your political frustrations, and I think part of what drew you to get into the politics game, correct me if I'm wrong, was your observation that politicians have stopped listening to their electorates. And it strikes me that I mean, the way to compel a politician is is with your vote. But if they're not listening in the first place, I wonder if it's it's difficult for a sense of cynicism not to seep in. Um, look, 
you're probably right if they've stopped listening or they're listening less. But in addition, they're not being as honest with the public who are listening um, as they ought to be. I mean, just imagine, you know, the, the I live in Melbourne. I've always lived in Melbourne. In fact, I've always lived in the electorate of Kuryong. If the politicians had said a few years ago, look, this climate change business is really, really dangerous, or as they did say, this coronavirus thing is really a problem, we've got to take serious steps about it, people stop and they listen and they accept it. And I think most people in Victoria, where in my opinion, Dan Andrews, uh, who's the Premier, Labor Premier, and I don't vote Labor, but I think he's done a very good job at making most Victorians brace themselves for a tough time. Mm. And frankly, I think if if we had a prime minister who was willing to do the same thing in relation to climate change, we would get a similar response from the public. Mm. Um, now, it's interesting to consider, you know, Scott Morrison, I think, is doing an adequate job in relation to climate change. Uh, sorry, the coronavirus. He did a shocking job in relation to climate change because during the bushfires, he simply refused to acknowledge the possibility that the bushfires had anything to do with the climate and changes to the climate over the last umpteen decades. To keep talking of public opinion, public behaviours, but in a different context, in a, a 2015 article that uh, you wrote for The Drum, when reports coming from Manus Island were, were particularly damning of how asylum seekers were being treated, you were writing of the indifference of public opinion. And I, I quote, Letters sent from Manus have been published, but this has provoked outrage only in that minority of Australians who are concerned about refugees. The public remain unmoved. And then a little later, nobody has been held to account for Hamid Kahazai's death in what looks like significant medical negligence. Public reaction to these things has been minimal, end quote. So what are the ways you see of inspiring the public to action or failing that even awareness of human rights abuses when it doesn't affect them directly because that seems to me to be what the blockade to compassion is um it's true that the public will react more rapidly to something that affects them directly but if you can get the message to them about what is going on and they have enough imagination to think what it might be like if they were in that situation, then they will respond the right way. I mean, consider this. At the moment, you know, the, until the until the Medivac legislation was uh, abolished some few months ago, it used to be the case that if an asylum seeker had been taken to Manus or Nauru, needed medical treatment which could not be provided by Nauru or PNG, as the case may be, then they could be brought to Australia for that treatment. There is, at the moment, in immigration detention in Australia, a bloke who was who arrived in Australia as a boat person, I think in late 2013, but I, I'm not sure about that. He was sent immediately to Manus Island because he was by himself. He was assessed within six months by the PNG authorities as a refugee, and he was removed to Australia about six or eight months ago because he had a medical condition that the PNG system couldn't deal with. He has still not received that treatment 
He's been told on the quiet that he might get it in 2022. And this is a bloke who we brought to Australia as a refugee and and yet we've locked him up. Now, I think that is – I think most people would be horrified to know that. Mm. The difficulty is that most people read the Murdoch press and generally speaking the Murdoch press uh, takes a very hard line in relation to refugees and they're not willing to criticise a government that is tough on refugees. Now, if that's the position that continues, it's very hard to see what individuals can do because individual voices will only make a difference as long as they're heard by enough members of the public. You've spoken before of Australia's treatment of, of desperate people and that it's something that many people will turn a blind eye towards or they may even encourage this you know, this whole go-back-to-where-you-came-from contingent. Uh, on this very podcast, on our second episode, I was speaking with Rhoda Roberts, who introduced the practice of welcome to country. And we spoke about this very venomous opposition that exists to the idea from people out there who respond with, why should I be welcome to my own country? I mean, this is playing a little bit of a dark devil's advocate, I suppose. Do you suppose that there's just an unhealthy nationalism that's built into our culture, some kind of jingoism that developed as European Australia developed and it's it's a part of our social fabric? Um, I, I do think that's possible. On the other hand, um, my experience has been slightly more encouraging than that. I mean, I got involved because I did the Tampa case. I really knew nothing about our treatment of refugees back then. Uh, but the Tampa case, incidentally, the Tampa case was decided uh, at first instance you know, by the trial judge in a judgment handed down at 2.15 in the afternoon in Melbourne on the 11th of September 2001. Mm. Eight hours later, of course, the attack on America happened and all of a sudden all terrorists are Muslims and all Muslims are terrorists and all boat people are Muslims, therefore they're terrorists, therefore we can mistreat them. That was the logic. Mm. I mean, it's, it's, you only have to say it to see how false it is, but it meant that the Howard government could get away with almost anything. And um, I think that's uh, a terrible pity. Mm. Now, we, we have a lot of friends who were, I think, inclined to accept what the Howard government was saying about boat people. But very soon after the very soon after the um, Tampa episode, my wife Kate, who's an artist, said, "This is shocking. This is not the way Australians are. Most Australian houses have got a spare room. We should set up spare rooms for refugees." That was her thinking. You know, if there's enough places that are willing to offer, able to offer free accommodation, they'll do it. So from late 2001 on. Um, We've had refugees living with us. And most of our friends who are probably liberal supporters or at least against the idea of boat people, when they met the refugees who were living here, they immediately began to say, oh, yeah, they're just, they're just people. Mm. We, we can't, you know, there's nothing wrong with being decent to them. Uh, it's, it's an amazing thing. And my experience after having had refugees here for nearly 20 years, is that they're just like the rest of us. Some of them are fantastic. Most of them are just fair average quality, you know, some terrific points, some points that aren't so great, and a few of them you wouldn't bother crossing the road to meet. 
but that's just like the rest of us. So when you find uh, yourself reflecting on or looking back to the Tampa days some almost 20 years ago, and yet we still find ourselves in a society where there is great mistreatment of refugees and asylum seekers. Uh, I mean, there are people like yourself and your wife who do grand work. Are you encouraged at the progress or is it frustrating that we are still singing the same song? It's very frustrating. Um, And Kate is inclined to be a pessimist. I'm much more inclined to be an optimist. I think the, the situation is this. When you see a problem and you decide to do what you can to tackle that problem, once you, I mean, there are there are times when I get tired of it when I really would prefer to be winning the game. But it is apparent to me that if you if you give up, you're bound to lose. If you keep trying, you might win. Mm. Just might. Uh, but interestingly, it wasn't the Tampa that changed my position on all this, or rather solidified my position on it. It was a case that happened um, a few months later. It was a family who'd come from Iran, mum and dad and two daughters. At the relevant time, the daughters were 7 and 11 years old. They arrived at Christmas. They'd fled Iran late one night in terrible circumstances. Uh, They fled and ended up going south. They arrived at Christmas Island and they were moved from Christmas Island to the Woomera Detention Centre, which used to be open in the South Australian desert. And after about 15 or 18 months there, they were all doing it really tough, but especially the 11-year-old daughter. And um, she, she, was at, she was in terrible condition. Anyway, a psychiatrist went, I think, from Adelaide or possibly Sydney to Woomera to speak to this kid and speak to her family. And he delivered a devastating psych report to the authorities, which said in substance that this child needed daily psychiatric help. Now, back then in Woomera, if you needed psychiatric help, there was a guy who used to fly his plane from Sydney to Woomera every five or six months. And you would get to see that person once in every six or seven months if you're lucky. But she needed daily psychiatric help. So the department, uh, in its infinite mercy, moved the whole family to Maribyrnong in the western suburbs of Melbourne. And despite the reason for the family being moved, namely that this 11-year-old kid needed daily psychiatric help, for the first few weeks of their time in Maribyrnong, nobody came to see her. Not a psychiatrist, not a doctor, not a social worker, not a nurse, nobody. And on a Sunday night in May of 2002, while her parents and her young sister were off having their meal, this kid, alone in their cell, took a bed sheet and hanged herself. But she was only little, and so she was still strangling when the family came back from dinner. She and her mother were taken to the general hospital nearby with two ACM guards, and so because the ACM guards were with them, I don't think there was any suggestion they'd make a run for it, because the ACM guards were with them, as a matter of legal analysis, they were still in immigration detention. And Con Karapanagiotidis, who during 2001 had set up the Asylum Seekers Resource Centre, he was looking after their visa application. He heard about this. He went to the hospital at about 9 o'clock that night or 9.30 and segregated the guards who know him pretty well 
He said he just wanted to speak to the mother to see what he could do to help them. And the guard said to him, no, you're not allowed to see them because lawyers visiting ours in immigration detention are nine to five, and they sent him away. He then rang me at home at about 10 o'clock that night, and I still have not got over the shock of that telephone call. And that, that specific case and that call is the reason that I'm still uh, as keen as ever I have been to try and change the way we mistreat asylum seekers. They haven't committed any offence, but we treat them like criminals. That's terrible. I've got to say, you know, it makes you wonder, is this really what Australia is like? If, if all Australians knew the facts, would they tolerate politicians who treated people like this? And I suspect the answer is they wouldn't. Mm. At least I hope the answer is that they wouldn't. It strikes me that you would be in a position to, to have heard many such stories of the, the treatment and the circumstances of asylum seekers that many of us would not hear. And, I mean, what you just said then is is incredibly upsetting and, and very, very moving. On the one hand, I would think you would need a very hard heart to be able to to find yourself faced with all of these stories and all of these many people who all have their own stories and find ways of helping them. But at the same time, you don't want to turn yourself numb to it and you still want to find the compassion to keep going. Is there a balance that you found you needed to strike? Uh, I'm sure there is a balance. I haven't managed to find it. But, um, you know, I mean, I, uh, I'm sure I've devoted much more of my time and energy to this issue than I should have. But how do you ignore things like that? You know, I mean, every every refugee case I've been involved in, I think, has thrown up facts which were as distressing as that one. I mean, one, one that occurs to me, uh, Iran is particularly difficult. Iran will not accept the return of people who are not allowed to stay in another country. So I did a case a few years after the one I've just told you about. It, well, it related to a, a guy who had arrived in Australia with his, I think, eight-year-old daughter and his wife, and I think they had another child they were going to follow. So he, he arrives here. They're banged up in, I think it was in Baxter, this some years after. So Woomera had closed and Baxter Detention Centre was there. That's where they were. And um, anyway, one day, one day, some guards come to their cell in Baxter and they order him to strip. He refuses because apart from anything else, um, his daughter was in the room. They, they, they wanted him to strip because they thought he had a cigarette lighter, which is a dreadful thing for an innocent person to have. Anyway, they... Um, he dragged him off and put him in isolation, solitary confinement. And the only video footage we managed to get in this matter was video footage from the large common area between their cell block and the so-called management unit. And you see him being carted away by a bunch of guards and this little child throwing herself on the back of one of the guards trying to stop him from taking her father away. Anyway, he's thrown into solitary, uh, which is a pretty miserable condition. His daughter is allowed a 30-minute visit every 24 hours. But one day, after he's been in solitary for a couple of weeks, she doesn't turn up. And 
He complains. He's told by the leader of the of the camp that she'll be there the following day, that she's been taken to Port Augusta shopping. Um, following day came and went. The daughter didn't arrive. And the same leader came into his cell and said, actually, your daughter has been removed from Australia and sent back to Iran. And if you want to see her again, you should volunteer to leave for Iran yourself. Because, of course, Australia was not able to send people back to Iran without consent. And he had a complete nervous breakdown. They had actually sent that child out of the country without telling the father, without giving her a chance to say goodbye to him. I think that was appalling. Luckily, we, we took that pretty hard through court and eventually eventually the government agreed to bring the daughter back, to bring the mother to Australia and, in effect, to reunite the family. But that bloke is permanently damaged by the terrible time that he had in solitary confinement and the terrible shock of learning that his daughter has been taken from him and sent back to Iran. That's a remarkable story. And I suspect you're right. We're more to Australians to hear some of these stories. I think that, or you would hope, that they would be more compelled to act. I yeah. Was really... I'm, I'm, not sure that they, I'm not sure that they need to... I mean, hearing the stories is one thing, but just meeting the people, discovering that they are actually human beings. They're not, they're not monsters with two horns. They're just people like us. Mm. And... Uh, that, that in itself is often enough to make people think differently about the situation. Mm. But, you know, the fact is that uh, the, the parliamentarians who govern the country can get away with uh, misleading the public as much as they like about the um, nature of the people that we're dealing with. Mm. You know, it's very interesting that they're called illegals. You know, the term illegals was coined by John Howard immediately after the judgment at first instance in the Tampa case. It's not widely noticed that we actually won the Tampa case, uh, although the win was overturned 2-1 by the full federal court a couple of days later. But the actual judgment of the trial judge in the Tampa case was handed down in Melbourne at quarter past two in the afternoon and what, six or eight hours later, the attack on America happened, and all of a sudden, you can say anything you like about people who are Muslim or thought to be Muslim, and get away with it. That's when John Howard started calling both people illegals, mm-hmm. even though they don't break the law. I was reading a, a quote of yours in The Guardian, in uh, back from 2018, where you were saying, the idea that politicians can gradually persuade the public to accept what is intolerable is very frightening. If you gradually make it acceptable to behave monstrously to other human beings, then you're on a very dangerous path, end quote. And then we look at the the rest of the world, and we cut to just today where you've been tweeting about the upcoming US presidential election in that we see not only a leading Republicans not denouncing President Trump as a threat to democracy, yes. but that he is eroding faith in the legitimacy of their democracy by doing all he can to uh, to stack the deck, if you will. Yeah. Yet we yeah. see, I mean, he still has supporters that are in the millions, even though he's a president who actively promotes hate and violence. That dangerous path you you spoke of, is the United States going down this path or is it, a, is it still just a bit of a threat? 
um, I think they're going down that path. I think they're a long way down that path. And I have to say my thinking on this subject has been informed significantly by a book that Eric Beecher gave me recently called How Democracies Die by Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt. And it is an amazing book. It gives a very, very interesting and clear account of what has happened to democracy in all sorts of other countries, notably South American countries, Malaysia, and so on, and America, because it is largely, I think, aimed at Donald Trump. And really, when you see what Donald Trump has done, it is alarming, and especially when you see the way he is apparently trying to rig the result of the November presidential election. Mm. Mm. You know, the fact that he's taken millions off the voting records and is defunding the postal service so that postal votes will be virtually impossible or maybe they'll be returned so slowly that he'll say that they can't be counted. Mm. You know, it's, it's very worrying. We, of course, have a, a very different style of governance to the US with a different sort of election process. Nevertheless, do you suppose we can look to the US as something of a, a Western world bellwether? As the US goes, so too may we. Uh, interesting question. I think the real risk is that we still tend to believe what our politicians tell us and they are still there for their own interests, not the interests of the public at large. And I think that's the big risk. The, the, the constitutional arrangements are so different there than they are here that I, I have some difficulty seeing how you could replicate in Australia what is happening right now in America. But when you consider the, the power of one branch of the press and when you consider the way that branch of the press is has cozied up to the governments, then, you know, whatever the mechanism, they can pretty much get away with taking power the way they want. But I personally right at the moment i think the problem in australia is that the people are not told all the facts well julian burnside we are essentially out of time it has been a pleasure chatting with you in perhaps nine months time or so we may find some way of enticing you to bellingen if uh if the fates are smiling and we can all congregate <laughs> again until such time what can you tell us about the the year ahead for you well, um, first of all, I've got to get my shoulder working. Um, mm. I mean, if, if I was at Bellingen at the moment, you'd see me in a sling mm. because my shoulder is still fairly crook because I, I, I tore a ligament in the shoulder and it was operated on uh, what, 10 days ago, 14 days ago, and it's pretty sore. So, yeah, I mean, it's, in a way, it's quite good that it had to be put off until next year. Mm. But, you know, I've been to Bellingham once before and I thought it was just terrific. I really liked the festival. So who knows? We may get a chance. Indeed. I suspect your your next book will unlikely to be finished and uh, out by the time it rolls around. But perhaps we'll have an excerpt. Who knows? <laughs> who knows? Yeah. Julian, it was a, a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you again for your time. Thanks very much, Adam. What a conversation that was. And I think Julian's faith in the fundamental decency of people, when given the full story, is quite admirable. 
But now, let's turn our ears towards the Mid-North for a taste of Bellingen Bluegrass. The Mid-North are a much-loved local band, and after this, I suspect you'll be a fan too.
That was The Mid-North with Rosewood, from the album You Were Right About the Stars. A great song from some great local performers. Now it's time to take our assigned seats, wait for the lights to dim, and the curtains rise for Mr. Louis Naurer. The author of multiple classic plays like Radiance, Cosy, Summer of the Aliens, and the memoir The Twelfth of Never, among many other works. Louis joins us to read a section from his latest release, Collected Stories. Enjoy this rather fabulous voyage to Lord Howe Island. From 10 Anecdotes of Lord Howe Island, from Collected Stories, Part 4, Flotsam and Jetsam. Although Lord Howe may be only a speck in the ocean, its beaches seem to attract flotsam and jetsam from across the world. Wrecks, masts, booms, planking, clothing, life jackets, and the remains of monstrous fish from the depths. There have been many wrecks on its reefs. In 1909, the bark Errol, bound for Peru, broke into three on hitting a reef. The captain's wife who was on board with her four children, saw her husband tumble over the side in a desperate attempt to help a crewman. As he tried to clamber back on board, sharks devoured him. The sight of her husband screaming as he was eaten alive sent her mad, and, believing she had nothing to live for, attempted to kill her children, only to be physically stopped by the crew. In 1911, two adolescents... Mary and Jimmy Perkins had just finished collecting mutton bird eggs and were about to return home when they spotted something yellow coming out of the sea. It was a young woman in a yellow dress. She was about 16 or 17 and could not speak. Whether she had never spoken or had lost her voice through the terror of what she experienced, no one ever found out. There was no ship on the horizon and it seemed to the two children that this woman who had emerged from the bottom of the sea, was a mermaid. They took her home. She was a curious creature, and creature she seemed to be, because she seemed a bundle of instincts rather than one with the considered behaviour of a human. She refused to wear any other dress than the yellow one, and when it was being washed, she would stay naked and scream if anyone tried to cover her up. She urinated when she felt like it, and didn't care where she did it, or who was watching. If she wanted something, a ribbon, piece of food, or bright object, she would snatch it out of the hands of whoever held it. She didn't seem to sleep at night, and was often found sitting on the floor. She refused to sleep in a bed, wide-eyed and humming tunelessly to herself. Sometimes of a day, she'd curl up on a warm spot on the veranda that overlooked the lagoon, and like some cat or dog, she'd sleep, occasionally whimpering, if experiencing a bad dream. Mary and Jimmy thought there was something special, even magical about her. The adults thought she may have fallen overboard from a passing ship, but on questioning the crews of the many ships that stopped at Lord Howe, none had heard of such an incident. 
At Captain Ocurus Kerman might come and stare at the woman in the yellow dress in the hope they might recognise her, but none did. The woman would follow Mary and Jimmy about and would frequently be found with them as they played on the beach or killed mutton birds. When the settlement had a picnic or a party, the woman in the yellow dress would attempt to join the singing or dancing, but she had a squeaky voice and danced like an epileptic. If it wasn't for Jimmy and Mary's love for her, the residents would have skipped her off to Sydney. But in her humming, the two children thought they heard another more beautiful language, and in her distant eyes, they thought they saw someone who could see other, more exotic worlds, especially the one she'd come from. She had been on the island for a month when one morning she emerged from the bakery at the rear of the general store covered in flour. Apparently, she had poured all of the island's stock of flour onto the floor and it had rolled in it and urinated on it. For five days, Lord Howe went without bread. She was scolded by the adults, but didn't appear to understand. Then one day, while Mrs Perkins was riding along the beach on one of the island's few horses, she saw Mary and Jimmy staring at the woman. She was lying on the sand, in the sun, with her yellow dress lifted up around her thighs. Riding closer, Mrs Perkins was appalled to see what the woman was doing to herself. A meeting of adults was called, and it was decided to send the unfortunate woman to Sydney. When Mary and Jimmy heard what was going to happen, they pleaded with their parents to allow the woman to stay, but they were unmoved. A few hours later, Lau Andrews saw the two children leading the woman with the yellow dress into the valley of the shadow of death. Obviously, the children were running away with her. A search party was sent out, but couldn't find the trio. Night was coming, and the adults were hoarse with yelling out the children's names. It was Mrs Wilson who saw them, far from the dark world of the banyan trees. The boy and girl were standing on the beach and were watching the woman slowly walk into the waves. Mrs. Wilson ran down through the hills, pitted with mutton bird holes, crying out their names. But the wind was blowing off the sea and they couldn't hear her. Once or twice she fell and stumbled as she landed awkwardly near a hole. By the time she reached the beach, only the woman's head was visible. Mrs. Wilson ran past the surprised children into the water, but it was too late. The woman in the yellow dress had vanished from view. According to the children, the woman knew she was going to be sent away, and she led them from the valley of the shadow of death down to the beach because, as they put it, she wanted to return to the sea. Far from being upset, Mary and Jimmy were pleased. There were no doubt that, like a mermaid, the woman lived in the sea, and one day, in the future, she would return. Her body was never found, and the mystery of how she had arrived was never solved, until years later, in researching the history of Lord Howe, Bob Cockburn studied newspapers and shipping movements of the time, and decided that the woman had jumped from a ship that was probably travelling to Norfolk Island. Whatever is the truth... It has always seemed to the residents that the humans who arrived on the island as tourists or as accidents were odd things, or perhaps the island changed them. In the 1930s, 
Francis Chichester, later to achieve fame as the first solo around the world yachtsman, for which he is given a knighthood, arrived at Lord Howe from the sky in his aeroplane. He was damaged by a storm, and during the many weeks it took to repair it, his previously hidden sexually voracious nature flourished. Many of the women remember his invitation to go fishing on the other side of Rabbit Island, where, as one bemused old woman once said to Bob Cockburn, a line was never cast. Seven Russians have been stranded on the island for over a year now. They were hired as builders by a French firm to construct a five-star lodge where Poole's Lodge had been. But, as if to confirm the bad luck of the site, the firm went broke. The Russians were never paid. Their relatives back in Russia can't afford to pay for the return, so the men spend their days doing odd jobs around the island for a pittance, or lying on the beach sunbaking. Their English is woeful. They try to tell the residents and tourists about their plight, but after a time, misery in paradise becomes boring. They are human wrecks, sun-brown castaways who fear they will never see their homeland again. Long-time resident Bob Cockburn approached a former Premier of Tasmania, one of several from the southern states who holiday on Lord Howe, and asked him to help the Russians. Hell no, he said. When Cockburn reminded him that he'd recently given a character reference for a local clergyman for being caught sexually assaulting a teenage girl, he said that was different. Dave voted for me. No Russian ever voted for my party. So why should I help them? And so we end another episode. Our thanks to Julian Burnside, Louis Naura, and the Mid-North. Remember to check the Bellingen Readers and Writers Festival Facebook page and website for details about more upcoming surprises and events. Until next time, your homework is to visit a second-hand bookstore and buy an author you've never heard of before. Who knows what worlds you might discover. <laughs>